0: Dr. Amalia Ghanies-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in studio today in Johannesburg, South Africa, is Dr. Nkumisa Chilata, who is Africa's youngest neurosurgeon. Her exceptional achievement was highlighted by Deputy President Sir Ramaphosa in an address to the National Assembly on the 31st of May earlier this year. Welcome to the show.
1: Wow, what an introduction. Thank you very much for the invite. I'm enjoying myself.
0: And now I'm going to talk a little bit more in terms of your profile as we go into the first question. Mm-hmm. You completed your Bachelor of Medicine, Bachelor of Surgery degree at Walter Sisulu University. Yes, I did. Mm-hmm. IMTATA Faculty of in Health Sciences in 2009. 2000, 2009 and then in 2010 you commenced with an internship at the Charlotte Makeke Hospital and went on to do a year of community work then in 2013 you enrolled at the University of Pretoria my alma mater
1: oh wow, lovely
0: <laughs> to do your registrar training and officially at the age of 29 became Africa's youngest neurosurgeon
1: yeah that's pretty much it <laughs>
0: Can you share with our listeners what made you decide to become a
1: neurosurgeon? Okay, the decision to become a neurosurgeon was, I think, twofold, you know. Um, As a young person, you sort of uh, look at a lot of things, and um, the decision to eventually pick one usually is influenced by a lot of things. So I'd say what stands out for me in terms of picking neurosciences as a whole Was a particular grade eleven teacher that we had. His name is Mister Nodia. You know the love he had for teaching the subject. It was just, it was, it was amazing. So the introduction he gave us to the central nervous system as a whole, and you know the functioning or the electrochemistry or the electro um, circuitry of of the nervous system itself. It was one of those things where I thought this is new, this is interesting, this is very fascinating, you know. So um, from then on, I decided, okay, I like neurosciences, but at that point, of course, I wasn't sure what in neurosciences I'd like to do. So then I decided I'll go into medical school. There's still a bit of neurology there or, you know, um, neuro-related issues that one can deal with. And um, I particularly remember, I think, third year or fourth year when we then started going to, to the hospital now to, you know, to get a little bit of experience. So this is the practical training, the practical as, training as part yes. of your yes. studies. You this to, to the hospital. You're introduced to, to patient care. You know, you're introduced to how to talk to patients. So I realized there was a shortage of neurosurgeons because particularly in Walter Susulu um, University where I studied, which is attached to the Nelson Mandela Hospital, I realized there were actually no neurosurgeons. Despite the pathologists being there, you know, because it's a huge area that um, the hospital is servicing. So you'd find when you get, say, neurosurgical emergencies, there was a general surgeon who would sort of do the emergency operation, but then everything else, you know, the more complicated, the tumors, the interesting, actually fascinating parts of neurosurgery, you would just see the patient, the imaging would be done, and the patient then has to be sent to Durban or to Cape Town. So it was always sort of this, more like a mystery to me like what happens to these patients when they then get to Durban in Cape Town and that's when I decided you know what that's what I'm going to do first and foremost it is fascinating number two there is a genuine need for for, for neurosurgeons so that's pretty much what influenced my my decision making so looking at demand and supply
0: trying to well, fill that yes, gap yes yes <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about the type of work that you do, what it entails? Because effectively, you're the brain doctor.
1: I am. (laughs) Um, Interestingly, you know how um, sort of people have this misconception about neurosurgery. You know, it is like common phrases like, you know, it's it's not brain surgery when you speak about uh, sort of unimportant tasks. But I think it 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 only serves to um, confuse people because I think most people you would relate to neurosurgery if you if, if you were to do it, but of course it, it requires a lot of, um, a lot of dedication. actually, first, let me start by saying one of the fascinating things about neuros is that no day is the same as the previous one. So I'll describe a typical day, but you must be aware that the next day may be completely different to what it was the previous day. So what we generally do is um, we investigate, we diagnose, and we treat medically and surgically right through to to rehabilitation of um, neurological pathologies. Now these have to be structural pathologies. By that I mean there has to be something that you can see on imaging, that need, needs to be fixed, whether it is a tumor or vascular problem, you know, wh- whatever, whatever it may be. And um, what we generally do is, it, it includes patients' ad- ad- admissions, um, you speak to the patients, find out what the possible problems are, you do the lab workup, the imaging of course, work a lot with the radiologists you know, in terms of deciding what exactly the problem is, what it most likely is, planning for theatre as well. So you need a tremendous amount of time dedicated to the planning itself because no patient is the same as the previous one. You know, there's a saying that we have, patients don't read textbooks, you know. So you can have somebody with uh, exactly the same problem as the previous one, but then the presentation is completely different. So part of the planning involves you, uh, you know, understanding the anatomy quite, quite intensely and um, knowing that whatever it is you are trying or um, aiming to do in theatre, you leave the rest of the brain tissue as normal as mm-hmm. possible, especially if there is normal brain tissue surrounding whatever the problem is. So there's a lot of planning that goes behind it. It's and so a
0: lot of risk.
1: A lot of risk, definitely so a part of that is then you go you operate and there's still the post-op care you know which usually involves the post-op critical care which is icu and um, part and parcel of that then involves you then teaching the medical students you know we get medical students that rotate to us and so your responsibility then would be to make sure that when they Mm -hmm. leave the department they usually come for a week or two with us and, um, of course, they won't know the intricate details of neurosurgery, but you want them to sort of, when they become GPs, you know, you know that they're confident and they're at least capable of detecting a neurosurgical Im- emergency and know when to refer to a, a neurosurgeon. And, of course, part of teaching the students will then mean that um, you need to then take part in the discussions, the academic discussions with the registrars as well. So that's pretty much what, what we do. <laughs> it's quite a, a broad <laughs>
0: set of... Responsibilities mm-hmm. and lots of interaction with different members of the team and having Definitely. everybody fit in it's together teamwork. to make Even work. in, in,
1: in theatre itself, you know, um, there's no operation that ever goes without sort of a. It, it's, it's, like, it's like the opera or it's, it's like music, you know. Each piece has got its own vital role to play. So by that I mean there's you, or let me say myself, who's then the surgeon at the time, you've got the assistant. You know, the assistant doctor, you've got the scrub sister, the scrub nurse, you've got the the anaesthetist, you've got, um, of course, the assistant to the anaesthetist. All of these people have got such a vital role because should a mistake happen from each and any one of them, somebody else must then sort of cover up in the five people that I've mentioned. So... I may cause a bleed. It's somebody else, the anesthetist must make sure that we top up the blood in terms of, you know, blood transfusion. They may have, so it's it's, it's really, it's it's teamwork.
0: And I think that's a lovely analogy using orchestra because beyond everyone doing their their particular Mm -hmm. role, there's also a key element of timing involved too. You've got to work together and and synchronize. What would you say are some of the greatest challenges in the role that you've experienced so far?
1: I think one of the biggest challenges would be, I think, time management. That's one that I would say I can relate to the most. Uh, You know, as an individual, one is um, multifaceted. And I find in those facets, there tends to be an issue because what this job requires, actually, is yourself, part of your family, your whole thinking process has to be at any given point in time that, oh, okay, Mrs. So-and-so is still waiting for an MRI, whereas Mr. So-and-so is not deteriorating and needs this. So you find a whole lot of time is dedicated to the hospital. And um, I find with time management, one needs to make a conscious decision as to how you're going to make a 24-hour day stretch into a 25-hour day. At least. <laughs> At least a 25-hour day, you know. So, um, of course, it takes a great deal of help from, from, you know, the rest of the people that are around you and, and all of that. But I would find one of the biggest challenges that I've had w- was, was, was time management. You know, there's always almost a deadline, there's presentations you've got to prepare. You're doing, you know, on-call duties, which means you must be there the whole night. You must still prepare for elective theatre, and, you know, you must still sort of try have a, a social existence, which is almost impossible when, when, when you're a registrar. So I think time management is one of the, yeah, the biggest challenges one will face if they, they, they're considering a career in neurosurgery. And it's
0: a tremendous organization that goes along with it oh, too. definitely.
1: Yes, yes.
0: One point that's remained with me after doing the research mm-hmm. on you for the show was about the good and the bad days in your field. Mm-hmm. And I read that you'd said patients often come in having been involved in an accident. There's blood in their brain and they can't speak. And there is no better feeling than watching that patient recover mm-hmm. after you've operated on them. But on the other hand, you also said one of the worst things about the job is the feeling of helplessness when you know that there's nothing that you can do for a patient. Definitely. So can you share with us how you manage these feelings, these emotions, Mm -hmm. and still find the power to come to work every morning and start all over again, not knowing what to expect? Because as you said, every single day is different.
1: different, definitely. That's an interesting question. Well, I would say, firstly, one needs to understand that you are first and foremost human before you are a doctor, which is going to mean that you're also subject to the same feelings that one would have, you know, with regards to grief and things like that. The problem comes, as I've just um, explained, you tend to bond a bit with your patients because now in this whole preparation process, you know, for theatre and, you know, doing the lab workup, seeing what's abnormal, correcting it. You get to know people's personalities.
0: And if it's intimate. You yes. are doing something that will affect their life.
1: Definitely. And now the problem comes, well, it's not necessarily a problem, but um, what tends to happen is that, um, say you come in, you are with your mother, your mother's got breast cancer, which has now spread to the brain. And now you've come in, she's presenting with the brain tumor or brain cancer or, you know, whatever you choose to call it. Now, the issue comes in the fact that now I get to know your mom, her personality. I get to know you your husband's present, everybody in the family because, you know, throughout the whole process, I've got to be explaining to you, okay, this is what we're doing now, this is what we've found, this is where we're at, you know, Um, then I need to explain to you, okay, fine, in terms of the prognosis, this is what we're expecting. The different things we need to look at, we look at things like age, we look at things like your comorbid status, by that I mean, you, are you diabetic, hypertensive, things like that that are going to actually affect the decision making. You know, we look at things like your performance scales, you know, in terms of what, if, what are you currently able to do, what are you not currently able to So in all of that, you're getting to know the person because you're, get, you're, getting, sorry, you're getting to know the most intimate parts of their lives. Now, should that person die or things don't go as planned? One needs to know that it is okay to allow themselves to feel the grief as well. Whether you're going to allow yourself an hour, whether you're going to allow yourself a minute, but you've got to allow yourself to feel the grief, while at the same time sort of trying to manage the family's expectations as well. So I would say part of the management is is having to realize that it is normal to feel the grief. Because what I think... What I tried to do in the beginning was to sort of act like, "Ah, it's okay, Patients are patients, you know, and and you move on. But you find in in, in the long run, it only affects you. So it is okay to feel, and uh, the next day you tell yourself, you know what, you're doing more good than bad at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And of course, you need to at some point make sure the feeling you get from the ones that do very well it is enough to sustain you, to sort of cover up for the ones that, that, that don't do so well. You know? yeah,
0: to outweigh the, uh, yes, the bad. definitely. On that note, how would you say being a neurosurgeon has changed your perspective
1: of life, mm-hmm. the way you view the world now? I must say it has changed it. Firstly, you know when you're young and you're growing up and you think to yourself, there's so much the world has to offer and you have to be perfect. Things are black and white, there are no grey zones. You either want to be, you know, a pilot, and you must be that, or you want to be a presenter, you must be that, and you must be this perfect, pretty woman who gets married, and you do this, and the things... The one, one thing Neuro has taught me is that, firstly, life is precious, it is short, and it is not guaranteed. I may be now on my way home from here, getting into a car accident, and that's the end of it, you know? So trying to live one's life um, to please people usually is only to the detriment of one's own peace inside. So the perspective that I've got now on life is, you know what, I'm happy to be alive today. Firstly, things can go wrong. They can go very right as well. (laughs) So really, don't sweat the small stuff, you know, in, 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 in simple terms. Don't sweat the small stuff.
0: And as we are a gender-based show, Mm -hmm. I also heard from one of your previous interviews that you'd said that you've had to work hard to prove yourself in a male-dominated field of medicine. Mm -hmm. And specifically, which I find mind-blowing, that it was common to be second-guessed as a woman, but one's work ethic will always speak volumes. And as a result of that, you'd hoped to become as a worthy standard for young girls to give them the courage to break through those barriers of patriarchy in medical science. Can you elaborate on this issue of bias towards women Mm -hmm. and also what your suggestions would be to other women when facing similar circumstances?
1: Yeah, It's a very important um, point you're you're, you're raising. And um, you find part of the problem is not actually even within the organization itself but you find the society at large you know when you get to a hospital i'm going to start from the patient's perspective you get to a hospital you are there with your dad he just fell today and the casualty officer has told you no there's a small bleed you know um, or big enough to warrant surgery and we're going to wait for the neurosurgeon to come and they're currently still in theater so it is not uncommon to get there, start explaining the situation to the patient, and having introduced yourself as Dr. Chilata. And um, this is what we're going to do, this is the cut we're going to make, and this is the reason your dad has got this, etc., etc., etc. Then the next question comes, firstly you're young, and now you're a woman. Then the next question is, actually when we came we were told that the doctor is in theater, do you know when he's going to be out? And you think to yourself, but like, when I came here, I introduced myself as Dr. Chigata. I work in neurosurgery, and um, so I am actually the doctor taking care of you. Okay, so then, so how many of these operations have you done? It's not an unfair question, but of course, being a young woman, you tend to find that you get a whole lot more than perhaps your, your male counterpart, you know. So, but with uh, growth and maturity, and uh, of course having spent the time that I've spent in Euro, you know, you you get to get a bit of um, resilience to that, and um, train yourself that you have to sound confident at any given point in time, so that even if somebody is going to be second guessing you, they are second guessing the work part of it, but not necessarily you as a person, and even within the organisation itself. You may have um, say maybe s- senior senior members of the of, of, of the department perhaps trusting you know the the male counterparts more than they would trust you, despite the fact that you're actually at the same level you know and i mean as has been proven before, medicine is not necessarily a testosterone demanding kind of job but rather an intellect demanding kind of job, which I think it has been proven that women have what it takes to be just as good Do you find that uh, because of those components Of being young
0: Of being a woman mm-hmm. That that drives you to work harder
1: Definitely You know I always say to myself um, If I'm to go and see a gynecologist Or I'm to go and see Say a, a pediatric surgeon for, for, for my child Because I know how hard That person has had to work To get to where they are They had to be extra good so trust me, you go to a woman. I'm not saying that they're better than the male counterparts, but because I know how good they have to be at their job to be taken seriously, firstly, by the patients, by the, their teachers, the professors that have taken them into the job, you know. So you have to work that, go the extra mile, because sometimes you'll find, say, there's a new consultant coming into your, into your department from, an, from another hospital they see, oh, here's a lady. Um, okay, at times they'll refer to you as, where's that girl? You know, and you think to yourself, had I been male, would you have been, you know, calling out for me like that? Where's that boy? Because I don't recall anybody ever being called like that. You know, where's that boy? But somehow when it's, when it's you being a lady, it's okay to just be referred to as, where's that girl? Whereas, and those are little things where you decide, you know what, I'm going to show you, I'm going to do this, mm-hmm. and I'm actually going to do it better than you. You know, so because of that, I tend to, it may be biased on my part, but I tend to trust the female doctors a tad bit more. (laughs) I think (laughs) that sounds wrong, but that's just a bias. on Well,
0: (laughs) I think that is a fantastic insider perspective and insight, which really goes to to show the the journey that women have had to take. And, you Mm. know, the pain that they've had to to walk through through. uh, that gives them perhaps the, the edge In their profession. Exactly. Today we're talking to Dr. Nkumiso Gelata, who is Africa's youngest neurosurgeon. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Humanity Talk. Dr. Gelata, when we last left off, we were talking a bit about gender. Gender equality is increasingly a global focus, as such, taking into consideration the different challenges and the successes that women's legal rights have had over the last few years. In your opinion, do you believe that 50-50 representation across the board is attainable?
1: I believe that, you know, wholeheartedly so, actually. And um, the problem is though, for anything to change, it takes time. And we start by changing the mentality first. And even if it means you, you've got to focus on generation by t- targeting different aspects in each generation, but eventually you will get there. And I believe that we can actually get there within my lifetime. Mm. Because I was uh, actually just to digress a bit, thinking about um, something similar the other day with my nephew. Here's a young man who is eight years old, you know, of course, a, a little boy. But um, in his world right now, for example. His aunt is a neurosurgeon. His pediatrician is a woman. In his world, you know, women are equally good. So there's no talk about, no, this one is a lady, so she might not be as good, this one is. So by virtue of having those types of role models, you then raise a young man or a generation which sees no gender in terms of gender roles. So we can definitely attain it. But we do, however... I think we've got a long way to go, you know, and uh, part of it involves, I think, if we are to to, to attain this dream, perhaps within my lifetime, we need more of the movements, you know, which are sort of directed towards women women empowerment, but to sort of try to bridge the gap between private sector, government sector, and academic sector, because you find sometimes these three sectors uh, sort of exist independently, you know, of each other. But now to try raise, you know, the, the, the amount or, or the number of women who are sort of in, in leadership roles or in, you know, in high decision-making roles. So we need something or more movements to sort of try bridge this gap between these three. So I definitely think it's, a, it's, it's an attainable dream. Well, I'm
0: that. glad you say that in your lifetime.
1: Definitely in my lifetime because I want to see it. I'd like to wake up one day and even if I'm 65 or I'm 70 and not be judged for being a woman, you can be judged for being old because you're old and maybe you started you know, getting dementia or something. So at, at, at 75, I'd like to know that you no, know, any young girl that, that's growing up, I'd like to know that they're not going through the same struggles that perhaps I had to go through. Otherwise, we will not really have achieved anything. In terms of this um, this drive mm. towards women empowerment, making sure that we're all you know equal, et cetera, et cetera.
0: It's interesting you spoke about that triad of of academics, of business, mm-hmm. and of um, the political space or the, mm-hmm. the public space. And really, we're doing well in the public space.
1: They're, uh, yeah, they're doing well. And I'll speak of my hospital. Actually, you know, these are some of the things that you you, you you notice. And as you are, you know, going through registrar time, you're like, you know what? I see the point. You know, you look at the head of department. Of um, departments like radiology you look at the head of department of urology which is a, a male department you know departments uh, you know the, 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 the list is there and these are ladies who are how do the you think <laughs> because
0: this is where i see that there's there's lots of value so we've got public sector we've got specifically in the healthcare in, environment business is a totally different story our numbers are still not there Within the academic space, we also have lower numbers of women mm-hmm. pushing through. What learnings do you think we can take from the public sector, even in the health environment, mm-hmm. and replicate within other sectors?
1: Mm. I would think, like I said, having specific women empowerment movements, you know, I think the importance of that cannot be you know, overstressed. Because unfortunately, one thing the private sector tends to excel in is uh, profit-making, you know. And to try improve the the, the the number of girl children who are now going to say, okay, I want to be a pilot, I want to be a neurosurgeon, I want to do this, I w- you need resources and funding for that. So whether they later on in life continue in the public sector or in the academic sector or in the private sector, the point of the matter is the country at large will, will then have seen an increase in terms of the number of professionals or let me say, people who are in high decision-making levels that are now women. So it all goes back or boils down to us as a country taking those types of movements seriously and having more of them, you know, encouraging people to do such. Because trust me, when you hear, even if you're a grade 10 child, that, oh, by the way, there's funding from whatever company, you know, and they specifically sponsor women with an interest in It could be, I'll speak of neurosurgery, because it's what I know. Even if you didn't know much about neurosurgery, at that point you will think, okay, what is that? You'll start Googling about it. you start knowing more about it. You know, you apply for the scholarship, or whatever it is, and you you end up doing it. And I kid you not, in 10, 15 years' time, you will see a difference in terms of, if there were five before, there will definitely be more than 10. Mm. You know, if there were 10 before, there will be 30. You know, and, um, and like you were saying, in in, in that pursuit of of, of equality, it's it, it that there. So it's identifying opportunities, looking where the resources, resources
0: are, and following the money.
1: That, that's pretty much it.
0: <laughs> in a similar similar track here, we're talking a lot about education, and mm-hmm. I think that part of driving one of I guess one of the entities or aspects of of humanity is about driving the idea that education is a key element for progress and development yes, amongst definitely. women in africa yeah. and i frequently ask my guests to share some of their experiences regarding obstacles that they've encountered whilst they're building their career to demonstrate to everyone who's listening to us the fact is that the achievements that you've managed today weren't received on the silver platter it required tremendous hard work and sacrifice. That is true. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those obstacles that you've experienced and have overcome?
1: Okay, I would think... I think for me it always goes back to the, the time management issue <laughs> in terms of, of, of obstacles. And there is a tremendous amount of work that one has to, has to put in. And I cannot overstress the importance of persevering through that hard work. You know there are times when you will wake up and think you know is this even worth it you know some of your friends are traveling the world they are having you know there's there's a dinner to celebrate this to celebrate that they're on to their second children you know and at some point you start feeling like you are a child with delayed milestones <laughs> you know everyone else is doing this and you're sort of Doing something something a little bit different, you know. So that on its own, it it can pose as an obstacle because, I mean, you've got to exist as a as an entity. By that I mean you've got to exist. There's the the doctor version of you, you know. There's the daughter version of you. There's the friend version of you. There's the girlfriend version of you. There's a, you know. So to try balance all of these, I, I found was um, it was it was quite strenuous. And, um, of course, while all of that is happening, there's still the expectation at work to to, to excel at what, at what you do. You're doing long calls, you're tired. But in terms of, um, you know, the dexterity that you've got to have, it, it can't change now just because you are tired and you've been working for the past 12 hours or you've just got to continue.
0: But do you think there needs to be a balance? Because if you look at where you're going, the trajectory that you're taking, mm-hmm. the reality is that you're pursuing a career at a very high level, mm-hmm. That if you were doing something which required less mental investment, less time investment, then you'd have time to do different things and everything else.
1: (laughs) So now I I hear you. That's where the importance of um, having an outlet sort of comes in, because remember, a lot of what you do at work is going to require energy from you, meaning energy expenditure. So at any given point in time energy is being taken out from you it you may be re-energized by the feeling of oh okay up went well you know etc but then you are still tired but you need an outlet but that i mean you need something where or things that you can do which usually are social things or not necessarily it can be exercise it's totally unrelated exactly totally unrelated. where after you've done that whatever it it is you know you you feel re-energized you've recuperated you can tackle on the next 10 days of your life without any problems. So unfortunately, you do need that kind of balance. Um, w- the proportions then are very individualized, <laughs> and it depends on, you know, on one and what they view is the most important aspect on that given day or at that given hour, because things change. What was important yesterday at 12 o'clock may not necessarily be as important today at 12. That's very true that
0: our life is in flux and you've got to take these dynamic considerations Mm. as they come. One question which I ask all my guests Mm -hmm. on the show is about some of the factors that they consider to have contributed to their success. So some people speak about hard work, others talk about perseverance. In your opinion what would you say have been some of the key drivers?
1: I would say strategizing and keeping focus of the end goal and you know you need around you people that believe in the same vision you know because there are lots of distractions you know whatever it is you're trying to achieve in life there'll always be distractions and they will not come labeled as distractions you know because sometimes you won't know something is a distraction until an external factor says just by the way these are just distractions you don't need at this point in your life you know so Of course, I must say, one of the driving factors has been a very good mentoring system, you know. When you have someone... A formal mentoring system? It can be formal or or informal, because the type of mentoring system that I'm specifically speaking of was not necessarily formal, as in, okay, here is your mentor for the next Mm. four or five years of your life. But this is a lady, her name is Dr. Mfundis, I don't know if you might have heard about her, you know. Who just uh, had this excitement you know from day one about me wanting to to do neurosurgery and because now she's a lady w- in the department somebody who's living it so you yourself then get somebody to sort of emulate what she does you do you know and um, people will speak of oh you know um, ladies at these ladies at that but then ultimately here's somebody Who saw potential in you and decided oh okay no trust me you'll be able to there's no need to self-doubt you will be fine go ahead do it and then uh, throughout then we'll have to remind you once in a while okay listen these are just distractions now just keep focusing on, on the end goal these are the exams you need to write move forward and that's it and of course in terms of role modeling you know it goes over and above just let me give you question papers in terms of this is what you need to practice for the exams. Just, just existing, the way you do things, you know. Um, you know, when people speak of, you've decided to do neurosurgery. Are you not scared that no man will want to marry you or you won't have kids? I'm like, I'm Did honest- you really have someone ask aspirate? me? I still have them today. What is the fear? Thank you. So I'll always say to people, no, not really. I've got a very good role model who's happily married with children, so and no such fears at all. So it's not like my risk or my chance uh, at, at marriage and children has now decreased or increased because I'm a neurosurgeon. <laughs> you understand? So I'd say definitely a good mentoring system is one of the driving forces. And, of course, each and every organization actually needs to invest in such, whether, whether it's going to be a formal mentoring system or, or informal because once in a while people need to be guided in terms of okay now you're digressing, you need to come back focus, focus, focus that's
0: it. I think that's a wonderful learning she's clearly been one of the strong women in your life <laughs> who else would you say has been a strong influencer to mm-hmm. contribute in terms of making you the person that you are today
1: I think the, the, the women generally that I've been exposed to while while growing up have been strong women, you know, from my mom, my aunts, my sisters. Because sometimes you you watch people, and because of the roles that they play, be it in terms of home management or their jobs, you know, and you watch how they do. So for me, I have never sort of had that... um, know women are less capable of anything. You know, I grew up in, in my in my neighborhood in, in, in Umtata. You know, m- my mom, a very strong woman. My, 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 my sisters, I'd say the same. Um, I mean, my next door neighbor, you know, they always say it takes a, a community to, 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 to raise a child. She w- I grew up with her being a, a bank manager, an original bank manager. So it's one of those things where you sort of had a, 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 a strong... Um, network of women around you who are themselves doing things. And I sort of come from a community where the women are very strong-willed and usually what they want, they get. So it is not like it's, it's, it's something new that I've, I've done. But it's almost, you know, you've kind of emulated the people that have been there in your life before. And I hope that somebody else watching this or looking at me or other people like me then gets the same kind kind of inspiration and thinks, actually, there's nothing standing in my way. Whatever I want to do, I can do, whatever it may be, you know. And that's pretty much it.
0: (laughs) That's a great message. And lastly, if I can ask you, as we close out our conversation today, if you can share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to women, young Mm -hmm. ladies, girls who are listening to us on Mm -hmm. the continent.
1: I would say, um, actually, not even to the young ladies, to the older ladies as well. There is nothing that is as important as encouraging the next person. Whether the next person is young or old or middle-aged, it's really immaterial because at times you may have um, a sort of a belief system in yourself that you can do something but then you may also have doubts about yourself in terms of maybe i'm not good enough maybe or build this whole sort of facade around what it is that you're trying to achieve and think, no, it seems too abstract. And who am I to think I can achieve that? So sometimes self-worth, it, it, it may once in a while, you know, need to be validated by the people around you. And I'm not necessarily saying that you need to seek the approval of, of, of other people, but you cannot underrate the importance of encouraging the next person and you don't know the extra mile that it may go you know. So I tend to find we, we, we underrate that kind of importance. Number two, I think one of the most difficult decisions about anything one wants to do is deciding what to do. Once you've decided what it is that you want to do, it's easier to kind of look around as to ways and means to get there. But the problem at times is deciding what to do. So over and above that, modelling of roles to people is what I find should not be underrated as well. So by you being you, for example, a presenter, SABC Africa, somebody else might not have known that, you know, this, this kind of, this, this beautiful, glamorous job that one may have. But by then watching somebody else do it and thinking, oh, and she's a lady as well, you know, I can do it, you know. So definitely that's, uh, that's what I'd say. And of course, always keep, um, be cognizant of the focus itself because trust me distractions will come and you just have to keep focus and know that i'm trying to move from point a to b eventually to c what comes in between is just that it serves to distract me and that's it so that's pretty much it
0: (laughs) thank you for that great message it's been a pleasure having you in studio today thank
1: you so much for the invitation
0: (laughs) and we wish you all the best of luck in the many years that are ahead of you in your career
1: thank you very much
0: you have been listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Dr. Nkomisa Gelata, Africa's youngest neurosurgeon.